everybody welcome back to COVID chat here we talk about tangential and contiguous issues surrounding the SARS COVID-2 otherwise known as the COVID-19 virus this is the only place where you can have an unfiltered and uncensored conversation about the impacts of the pandemic I'm your host Mario Christie and I'm your host Eleanor Terrellong we are now living in corona time and the only way our nation can ensure survival is for us to Get with, with the, the program. program. COVID-19 isn't going anywhere. It will be a defining factor in our lives and our livelihood for the foreseeable future. Though it's a critical public health concern, COVID-19 is not just a public health issue. It's social, economic, and environmental. COVID Chat is a program that will delve into all the issues and impacts caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as our national and regional response. How will we address our national and global sustainability needs during this time? This initiative is powered by the Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council, a youth affiliate of the Jamaica Climate Change Advisory Board, in partnership with Environmental Solutions Limited, the Caribbean's leading environmental consultancy firm. We want to welcome everyone to the discussion and thank you all for joining. Please share with us on social media using the hashtags, that's hashtag COVIDChat, hashtag Corona time and hashtag environmental sustainability. And don't forget to follow at our footprint on Twitter and Instagram and at ESL Caribbean on Twitter and at Envirosol, that's E-N-V-I-R-S-O-L on Instagram. This week, we're focusing on something that's on everyone's mind. Can our economy really recover from the shock of COVID-19? COVID-19 has affected many of our income-generating sectors, especially tourism and agriculture. This week, we have some very special guests with us. We have Dr. Dalana D'Souza. He's an economist, a policy analyst, and currently senior financial analyst at LIAT. And we have Mr. David Mulling, the chairman and CEO of Blue Maho Capital Partners. So good morning, gentlemen. For joining us. Good morning and thank you for having us. Good morning. All right, so before we get into the discussion, I'm just going to ask you to quickly share a little bit about what you do, um, the work that you do in the sector. Um, I'm going to start with you, Dalano. Oh, great. Uh, again, morning, everybody. Thank you for having uh, me on this uh, exciting discussion this morning. Uh, um, like you mentioned, I'm Dalano D'Souza. I am a uh, finance and economic researcher, more readily a policy analyst. I've been looking a lot at economic development throughout the region, maybe over the last five or six years. Uh, that's what I focused on when I was completing my PhD. I've done some, I've been in the finance sector. I've been finance manager of several companies in maybe two or three companies in Barbados, uh, in St. Vincent as well. Uh, but really I'm, I'm, I'm an academic at heart. I'm actually soon returning to UWI as a lecturer in the Faculty of Economics. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but my work really spans, like I mentioned, uh, development issues. And I've been, I also host a podcast, which you've been on, I don't know, where we kind of focus on, on um, regional issues and development issues. So that's really me in a nutshell on what I do in terms of uh, the relevance to this topic. Thank you for joining us. And David, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Thank you for having me again. I am David Mullings, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Bloomerho Capital Partners. We're a U.S.-based private investment firm that's committed to making it easier for U.S. retail investors to invest back into the Caribbean, you know, building a portfolio of public and private equities across a number of industries down there, 
I previously worked with a, a long bias hedge fund here in the US, uh, worked in private equity, and worked three times at Jamaica National. I was on the product development team and marketing team, so I have to design investment savings and mortgage products out there. Uh, so looking forward to having very spirited discussions about this. All right, thank you. Okay, thank you both for that um, introduction and for the work that you're doing in raising awareness on our regional economic issues and also promoting um, our economic development. To our guests, uh, remember this is an inter interactive conversation. We encourage you all join in with comments and ask questions by either typing directly into the chat box or using the raise hand feature in Zoom. Remember to keep the questions and comments short and spicy so we can hear from everyone. And I'll also ask that you keep your phones on silent so the uh, notifications don't come up at the end in our podcast. All right, thank you, Mario. Let's get into it. So I'm just going to set some context for the conversation today, and then we'll get into the questions to our panelists. So New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern recently criticized a tendency among countries to measure success by economic growth and GDP. Ardern said that governments should instead focus on the general welfare of citizens and make investments in areas that unlock human potential such as mental health services, reducing child poverty and homelessness, fighting climate change and expanding opportunities. Economic growth accompanied by worsening social outcomes is not success. It is a failure. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, Jamaica has seen considerably lower inflows from tourism and remittances, approximately 20% and 15% of the GDP was made up by tourism and remittances respectively prior to COVID-19. But the sudden stop in tourism, fall in aluminum prices, prices are generating an increase in unemployment and a fall in projected GDP. Fortunately, unlike in previous crises, Jamaica is in a more robust fiscal and macroeconomic position to develop a strong emergency response. Two years ago, the government made a historic transfer of $2 billion to our National Disaster Contingencies Fund, which was created to provide for disaster-related expenditures of any kind. From this, we're able to draw down from this contingency to help us finance some of the emergency social spending that will now be needed for the COVID-19 crisis. So to both our panelists, what do you think the region's economies will really look like in the post-COVID-19 age? Is it that we'll be forced to transition to more or less sustainable industries or more digitally focused modes of operation? What do you think? I'm going to start with you, Dana, where you can give us a sort of regional perspective. Uh, sure. Uh, what do I think the region's economies would look like post-COVID-19? Uh, well, I'd I like to begin by starting with the recent uh, IMF World Economic Outlook, where they projected global growth again uh, to fall even further for 2020. Uh, initially in April, they had anticipated it would have been around 3%. Now they've gone to uh, a contraction of around 4.9%. So we see that uh, within the space of a quarter, we've already globally fallen again by another 1.9%, which translates to billions of US dollars. Uh, similarly, uh, the International Labour Organization has also been speaking about the, the loss of jobs globally, uh, spe specifically among low-skill workers. Uh, these are the ones who we would find inside of the tourism industry and so on. Those, those industries that, that have sort of paused as a result of COVID-19. So these are some of the issues that we have to contend with going forward. But in terms of how our economies would look going forward, um, if we're judging by our history, it's difficult to sort of imagine 
a, a, re a rearranged economic structure in the immediate years past COVID-19. Our, our dependence on tourism uh, for foreign exchange and employment will likely continue uh, for at least the, the foreseeable future. Uh, however, one would hope that the closure of the borders and most of the tourism sector highlighted the fallibility in the model that we have in terms of um, uh, the lack of diversity in, in our um, economic uh, structure. But the reality is that diversification does take time and it must be strategically planned. And it often, in, in, especially in the case of small island states like ours, it depends on uh, natural resource endowments. So if you look at Guyana, for example, who's poised for a takeoff, provided that they can get past this political uh, turmoil <laughs> that they have currently have ongoing. But in terms of um, just kind of zoning a little bit now on uh, the dependency and the diversification of our economies, if you look at Trinidad and Tobago, which today, uh, Prime Minister Rowley continues to say their borders remain closed. While if you compare that to a state like Antigua, Jamaica, for example, uh, Antigua was among the first countries and Jamaica to actually reopen their borders to international travel. Now that's not coincidence. The reason for that is because something like 60% of Antigua's GDP is contributed by, by tourism. Whereas in the case of Trinidad and Tobago with their natural resources and oil and so on and their manufacturing sector, they can afford to hold their economies and keep their borders closed for a little bit longer. So these are the sort of things that we have to consider going forward. Uh, but the point is this, uh, with the, historically we have a slow pace in, in terms of reorganizing and diversifying our economies. If we look back to agriculture, for example, when banana and sugar was king, and if we look at what it took us to move into tourism, in terms of what caused us to move from agriculture, it, it took things like <laughs> intense competition, the World Trade Organization rulings and so on, to sort of make us embrace a new uh, economic um, structure, which really was tourism. So if you look at how we've historically, we've been reactive. So I don't necessarily imagine that going forward in the immediate future, we're going to see that. Uh, and just quickly now on, um, on um, the, digitally, the digitally focused um, operation, what this, what this pandemic has done, it's started um, brought to the fore some of our failings as a region in terms of a few things. One, the infrastructure, uh, internet speed and unreliability. Uh, automobile technologies, for example, a lot of companies still, for example, have their staff working on desktops as opposed to laptops, so you can't exactly work remotely. A lack of digitization in terms of records, public, you know, you, you can't operate because you need to get physical copies of things. A lack of public sector ICT um, utilization, so we see a lot of the government ministries, they can't function because, you know, because of their, their lockdowns and so on. The human capital, we are, especially for the digital immigrants and so they don't have the capabilities or the skills to really embrace a digital uh, mode of operation. And importantly for me, a lot of people don't mention it, but the mind state of the people, especially those business leaders. And so a lot of our business leaders still believe that our employees still need to be in the job for us to feel like they're working. We don't, we haven't embraced this thing to say, well, you can do that from home, you know, once you give me, once you meet your targets and so on, I'm fine with that. We still believe in seeing our people showing up in the morning, clocking in and so on, to, to feel like they're contributing or adding value to our company. So these are some of the things that I see uh, as issues going forward. Thank you, Dalano. Um, Daniel, you want to add anything to that in terms of just a little bit more from the Jamaican perspective? Yeah, well, and I can still add from the Caribbean perspective, I think the, the good doctor hit every single nail on the head that needs to be hit, that he put it in very good words. Now, for me, we, we have to look at it this way. We were supposed to have been participating in this digital economy, the fourth industrial revolution, but most of the Caribbean countries have been significantly behind. And the doctor pointed out exactly what that happened when, when banana was king and silver. 
it literally took something bad happening and causing competition. But once again, now we have COVID-19, a pandemic that is now forcing people to admit that they've been too slow to be prepared for the 20th, 21st century. We are stuck in this 20th century mode of educating people and 20th century mode of doing business, which means that it is not going to be sustainable. We take a very long-term outlook. So I look towards 2050. So 30 years from today, what will the Caribbean look like? Well, the Caribbean only has one option. It has to digitize, right? It has to learn from the Singapore's around the world and invest in those kinds of things that, that help those countries to have been better prepared for the fourth industrial revolution. So human capital is, is one of the most important ones. Better resource management, digital transformation is going to be key. So I do think it is going to change though, right? The, the perception might be that we are very slow and, and sometimes that is true, but you know, Prime Minister Holness in Jamaica said that they need to start moving at bold speed. Business needs to start thinking at bold speed. I think that is a call to action. And fortunately, we intend to invest in companies that are doing that. We intend to invest and help companies to do that as well. But the companies who are going to be slow movers, essentially the dinosaurs, are going to die. They are literally going to die and they're going to be replaced. And, and that is a, the interesting thing about capital. Uh, there is creative destruction as 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 it is called, and, and I can see that happening. The risk is that the destruction takes place in the Caribbean and the creation takes place outside of the Caribbean. We need to ensure that you know, local capital, not just the outside capital like us, but local capital is also being put to use in research and development to ensure that we do more sustainable farming, for example, or that we're doing, uh, doing the proper R&D on the tech side, on the healthcare side. Thank you. All right, I'm going to pivot just a little bit. So we, we've talked about our situation in Jamaica and the region on a whole. Um, but are we looking at, so can regional collaboration improve, improve the outlook of individual CARICOM states? Or is it that each country should be focusing on its own economic recovery? And if there is region for collaboration, you know, what kind of areas or avenues might be available for this? I'm going to pose this to Delano first. And I know you've done a lot of work about um, intra-regional travel, and I know that uh, you work at Laird and all of that. So um, if you could just incorporate some of um, your work in that area into talking about regional collaboration. Should we be approaching this as a CARICOM body or should each country just be focusing on itself? Uh, sure, sure, I don't know. Uh, for me, you know my position, I'm a, regional, I'm a regionalist at heart and in terms of what I do. So I, I don't, I definitely do not believe uh, that we should be approaching this uh, alone. I think we should be collaborating. I think uh, this this pandemic has kind of awakened us, especially the young people and, and those who are involved in social agitation and change. We've seen, uh, even if our leaders haven't seen it as much as we have, we've seen uh, the potential for, for collaboration. And we are asking them to do just that. So I do believe that there's a lot of space for us to, for us to um, collaborate. And just off the top, I could think of a few areas, and I'll jump into regional tourism first because you mentioned it. Uh, oh, oh, we 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 obviously very dependent on tourism in general. Uh, we depend on it for employment. We depend on it on, for foreign exchange and all that jazz. Uh, what what we have not done as a region, maybe over the last decade or so, is put any real focus or any emphasis on interregional travel, and this has been to our detriment. Now, I know a lot of the focus is, okay, well, we need the foreign exchange from the international tourists and so on. <laughs> but you also have to remember that when regional people come, regional tourists 
come because uh, I, I, sometimes we don't even differentiate them. We don't even call our regional people tourists. But in fact, and I, that has led to sort of some of the stigmatization against regional travelers because we don't consider them tourists. We only consider the international tourists from the UK and the US as tourists. But regional people are tourists too. So when we when we come to your countries, studies have shown that we spend similar amounts or sometimes even more money than the international travelers. Uh, studies have also shown uh, that in terms of the velocity of money, how we spend our money when we come to Jamaica, uh, it's not in an all-inclusive hotel. It's more on, on the guy on the street. We might go in and down half, which we might buy some things and so on, that sort of thing. So the money is moved around to, to critical areas a little bit more uh, than, than those other areas. But what we have not done is that we have not created a, an environment that facilitates interregional travel. And you know, a lot of my work has focused on, on taxation, uh, travel taxes across the region. I think Grenada and St. Vincent have moved in the direction of lowering their taxes the interior, as a result of pressure from uh, a range of bodies. Jamaica is among, interestingly, Jamaica is one of the highest tax interregional destinations, them Barbados, St. Lucia. And uh, your, your, your leadership has been quite quiet on this, um, and, but we'll continue to agitate. I won't get into that now, but it also has, it also has the, the potential to reduce foreign exchange spending. Because if you look at it, you, you say that regional people, regional travelers don't bring in as much money as foreign, but if, you, if the cost of travel is cheaper, you might actually find Jamaicans traveling across the region. Now, what that does is it saves your foreign exchange as opposed to going to the UK or the US and spend foreign currency when they go there. They come to the region where it's cheaper and the money is kept in the region. So all these are benefits of a regional, uh, a regional tourism package. Um, I can think of stock markets, for example, in terms of collaboration. Perhaps we need to move towards a more collaborative approach. We have the Barbados Stock Exchange, the Eastern Caribbean Stock Exchange. We have the Trinidad and Tobago Stock Exchange. We have the Jamaica Stock Exchange. Why can't one day we have the Caribbean Stock Exchange or something like that where you can really pool your resources together and, and create opportunities for businesses to develop the access capital uh, outside of the, the regular traditional banking sector and so on. These are things that we need to look at. We need to look at trade. Uh, the import bill of CARICOM is something like $4 billion US dollars a, month, a year. And so on. we need to sort of redouble our efforts to, as far as possible, reduce that. We always speak about the land and in Guyana. We always speak about the opportunities for agriculture and collaboration. I, I mean, they could go on and on. The, the sharing of resources and technical expertise and infrastructure. I, as somebody who's lived in maybe four or five different Caribbean countries, I've seen, for example, uh, what, what, what the advances in some countries are. For example, we have online tax administration systems in some countries. Others are struggling to have their people pay tax and administer tax properly. Uh, we have uh, education management information systems top tier in Jamaica, while other countries in the region are struggling to really manage their, their education systems. So there are a lot of ways that we can collaborate to, to get us in uh, and moving forward, even in terms of collaborative procurement. Uh, especially the OECS has a, a pharmaceutical procurement um, initiative where we purchase medicine as a, as a group and then we distribute it. Why can't Jamaica and some of the other bigger countries get involved in that? Even especially now, everybody is struggling to get COVID-19, PPE and, and, and um, testing material. And so what if we came together and purchased as a block? These are things that we need to look at. Thank you, Nalana. David, any thoughts on regional collaboration and um, yes. those gaps? I mean, the doctor was, was very clear. Delano listed out so many ideas that are just common sense. If you spoke to a, a person in high school, they would agree with all of that. But for some reason, the older you get and, and the more empowered you get is actually the more you focus on your own fiefdom. So we have too many islands who, who would rather be their own kingdom and don't care about working with other people. So there has to be 
cultural change. But we, we can't talk about regional integration or being more like a European Union, which is, is what CARICOM really should be, right? We have CSME, Caribbean Single Market Economy. Uh, there are people who will happily import your products, but they don't want to import your people to work. So we need to simply admit the truth. There is a big elephant in the room that we have cultural issues between the different countries, whether it's Trinidad versus Jamaica versus Barbados, the small island massive, as we call them, Guyana, Suriname, Belize, Bahamas. We have a fundamental problem. And so that has caused major issues. Right? It, to me, is ridiculous as a Jamaican that Jamaica left the West Indies Federation. And as I say, one from 14 or whatever it is, leaves none. That, that is a Jamaica issue. Jamaica did that. And we now pay money. We help to set up the Caribbean Court of Justice. But Jamaica doesn't use it. They would rather use a Privy Council, which is in the UK, very far from us. That can't continue. But at the same time, we can't wait on all the countries to understand comparative advantage, right? This is, this is economics 101. Every country has a comparative advantage in something. So whether it's Guyana should be the breadbasket of the Caribbean or Belize could share in that. Trinidad is better for manufacturing, obviously, because they have lower cost of energy. So Jamaica hardly can compete on the manufacturing side. Everybody has focused on doing their own thing rather than coming together. That is going to take a generation to change. I agree that intra-regional travel could change it. If more Jamaicans were interacting with more people in Barbados and more Trinidadians and St. Lucia, Bahamas, Suriname, we would realize how much more we had in common than the differences that we had, right? Our colonial history emphasized the differences between these islands. And we need to include Haiti and the Dominican Republic, Turks and Caicos, the BVI, the USVI. They're part of the region and we shouldn't leave out Cuba. These are all grouped together when they say LAC, Latin American Caribbean countries. Well, the Caribbean is English speaking, Spanish speaking, Dutch speaking, French speaking, Creole speaking. Unfortunately, because interregional travel is so expensive, most people only integrate at, at UI on campus and abroad. I, I was a member of a Caribbean student association, and that is how I learned to appreciate my fellow Caribbean brothers and sisters. Because when I stepped out on the campus, I was not treated as a Jamaican. I was treated as a Caribbean person. Because we're small. We are really small islands. And we need to band together so that we can punch above our weight. And that, that just has to change. But well, you can't wait. So every country needs to be working on their economic recovery while building more bridges with the rest of the region. Do you think that... Um or government, because I, I will say that our prime minister made a comment that incensed a lot of people that Jamaica is the center of the Caribbean. So do you think that there's actually um, desire within our governments for that sort of regional collaboration? So, so I, I honestly don't know. I can't speak to what is in the prime minister's head. I, I know Andrew Holness personally, but I can't speak to what is in his head in terms of their desire. I think the obvious requirement is that we need to be operating as a region. I think that comment should not have been made. I think once again, it, it shows that Jamaicans think that they're the biggest thing and, and it plays into that stereotype mm -hmm. that causes animosity between the rest of us because as a Jamaican, I have no problem saying that. I, I love going to Barbados and doing business there. You know, Barbados and Trinidad have significantly higher productivity over the last 30 years than Jamaica. And Barbados and Trinidad have, have significantly higher per capita incomes and median incomes than Jamaica. So I wish that Jamaica had done what Barbados did in investing in education and so on. So until you can admit your own faults and your own mistakes, you're going to have a problem, right? You'd rather talk about the, the, the speck in somebody's eye when you, you have this giant log sticking out of yours. 
So we need to humble ourselves. I think especially Jamaicans, we need to humble ourselves, learn from other countries around the world, not just in the region, and then we go from there. Learn from the Costa Ricas, learn from Chile, learn from Barbados, learn from Singapore, learn from Estonia, learn from Rwanda, and then go from there. Um, Dalana, I saw you coming with a comment there. No? All right. Um, oh, oh, you, sorry, I, I think I had this. Uh, I would just add to that. I would say, do we all speak about actions and, and speaking louder than words and so on? And when it comes to our leaders, I think they need to realize that people are watching. This is the age of social media, and, and sometimes you live by you live by the sword of social media, you die by the sword of social media, and so on. You have to be so careful with social media. And I said that to say, we, a lot of people, are, uh, we are looking to see how you're leading. We are looking to see the comments that you make. And we are taking our cues from you. Maybe some of the more, um, the, the, the more educated and the more regionally exposed persons would not you know, necessarily buy into the sort of hateful rhetoric and so on and be, make it something uh, that, that spews animosity. But when you look at how far this tweet has reached, for example, this comment has reached, it, it has transcended. It's now gone to the person who perhaps isn't as knowledgeable about the region and so on. And it sort of feeds into all of that. So our leaders need to be putting that message out there that, listen, we are about regional collaboration, we're about integration. And in addition to that, we need to show respect for our, um, our regional integration mechanisms. We need to show up to the meetings. We need to make sure that people see it as a priority. Every time there's a meeting, you know, these are things that I know I look at. I don't know about the others, but I know I look at it. If there's a meeting and four CARICOM meetings come and you ain't come, you send a representative every time. It tells me that you, are, as a leader, is perhaps not as interested in the regional integration movement as others. And so for me, you know, we need to do better than that. Our leaders need to set the example and set the tone. All right, thank you. Um, just a reminder to our audience, I see that the group chat is, is popping today. Um, if you have any comments that you want to just, or any questions directly for our presenters, you can raise your hand or you can drop it in the chat box and we'll pose it to them. All right, so we talked a little, we were on the tourism vein and regional tourism. But we know that without tourism, and we have, would have spoken about this, that there's reduced foreign exchange coming into, our, in the, into the region. Um, and even though we spoke about um, it would also reduce foreign exchange spending, at the end of the day, we still want foreign exchange coming in. So how can we address this um, while still keeping our borders, quote unquote, safe, even though personally, I don't think that our borders are safe right now. But um, on that general thread, how, how can we, um, with this drop in tourism, how can we, we, we address that foreign exchange problem? Anybody? Well, for me, um, I would speak. Did my, my mother always used to say, a dollar saved is a dollar earned. So for me, I would sort of take the approach of, okay, we, we're, we're running, we're, we're not getting tourists, tourists in as much, so we're not getting in as much foreign exchange. So what should we do? Apart from just lamenting that we should perhaps try to save in terms of our foreign exchange expenditure, we should, like I mentioned before, we should conserve in terms of reducing imports of food and other non-critical um, um, imports. Uh, we, when we look at it, our, our people in the region, our propensity to import is very high. Uh, you know, every time you get a little bump in your salary, you see something additional on Amazon, you tell yourself, boy, let me cut that. You, you know, so these are the type of things that, that, that we have in the region. We have a high propensity to import stuff. And it's, it's directly obviously correlated to our income. 
So we need to look at things like that. I mean, I know Trinidad, for example, I don't necessarily want to go around of taxation, but I know Trinidad, for example, they have an import tax where you pay specifically, in addition to all the other duties and so, as a disincentive to have people importing stuff on Amazon and so on. So that's one, I don't know how well it's worked since it's been implemented, but they've been doing things like that to sort of conserve their foreign currency. Um, I would say alternative energy investment as well. When you look at what we import in terms of our... Um, our foreign exchange expenditure, a lot of it is oil and gas. Um, in terms of the gas that we import, a lot of our bills as countries, our BOP uh, is made up of gas. If we can invest locally and, and reduce our dependency on foreign oil and get some of that energy security, that would go a long way towards reducing and saving our foreign exchange. And I would say foreign, foreign direct investment as well. There are a lot of opportunities and perhaps um, David could speak a little bit more about this. There are a lot of opportunities outside of tourism where we could be seeking to invest, to, to attract um, foreign direct investment, to build up our economies that are not focused on tourism. I'm tired of hearing, oh, we have some new FBI coming in. We're building a new hotel. We're building a new hotel down so we're building, you know, let's, let's hear about some other news uh, that, that is related to foreign direct investment. 100% agree and co-sign on that one. I, I think Delana focused a lot on the saving side and then hit on the FDI side, which I, I come from the investing world. I don't think you can save your way through this problem. I think you need to have that investment. But we need to be focused on, on far more opportunity than just tourism, for example, or bauxite or energy manufacturing. We, we need to have a much wider scope. I get to see opportunities. We've seen opportunities across Eastern Caribbean being sent to us and in Jamaica and Guyana. We've seen something in Belize as well. So I will admit that somebody like Jamaica Trade and Invest Jampro is doing a, a, a good job. I think we can do a better job as well in terms of reaching out to people. But we need to realize that our, our diaspora, our Caribbean diaspora is massive. It pretty much is is equivalent to the population of the people living in the Caribbean as well. And they have not been given a vehicle that allows them to invest back into the Caribbean. They get to the remittances, but if I want to open an account in Jamaica, it is a very tedious process to open an investment account in Jamaica or a savings account. And, and that is why Bloomerho Capital exists. If it was simple, I wouldn't have to exist. We, we would just do our own investments. But we are building a vehicle that is transparent, will be publicly listed here in the U.S. eventually buy our shares and then we deploy that capital across the region and we're putting together an innovation fund that can invest across the region in what needs to happen in our opinion for the next 30 years to to change the trajectory but that is where we have to focus on if you look at what costa rica did to get intel down into such a small country right? costa rica is not a, a massive population why would intel be down there where well, their government worked closely with them and said what kind of people would you need to be able to work at this factory and then the, the partner private sector with the education component so jamaica might be a heart trust nta for example and you partner them together the person does their course and graduates and then works in that factory because intel was there in costa rica they created a cluster right you see dell computers say oh well if, if the chips coming off the line right here we should go and set up next door to it. And there's a huge push now for nearshoring, right? Essentially, reshoring. People are moving from from China because we had supply chain disruptions. COVID caused a massive supply side problem, which then also created a demand problem because we were now stuck at home. People are now looking to come back closer. The Caribbean is in the same time zone, majority English speaking, culturally similar. Everybody knows it from the vacation side. They think it's inefficient on the business side. 
but we can take advantage of all of those things, right? We're close to the Panama Canal. We have deep harbors in, in the area with very good port connectivity, shipping connectivity. We need to work on the air part from, from a cargo standpoint in particular. But we have opportunities. So we could do the same exact thing as Costa Rica in the newer areas, whether it's AI and machine learning, or we want to look at, at additive manufacturing, so that's 3D printing. But we could be doing a lot more in the, the climate change and renewable energy space. Let's be honest, we are ground zero for that. Why aren't we seeing more R&D work in, in the solar space and inventing better and more efficient solar PV modules in the Caribbean? That, that literally should be doing being, work being done in the region. You want to test wave technology, come to the Caribbean, let's be honest. So I think those are some of the things that we need to be looking more at. But that requires imagination. It requires investors who are patient and can wait 10 years, 15 years, and, and not looking to simply be, be traders. And, and unfortunately in the Caribbean, as Delana said, we tend to be more consumers than producers. And we need to completely reverse that and flip the script. We need to become far more focused on efficient production. Because we have production. We, we're not efficient. We're not cost competitive with the rest of the world in too many cases. And we need to change that. We need a new productive mindset that cares a lot about our productivity. Great, thank you. Um, I see a couple of questions coming in the chat. So I'm gonna ask, this looks like it would be posed to Dalano. What will it take for us to reduce the cost of intra-regional travel? Are the current prices deliberate or are they based on pride? Or is it actually due to actual cost and resources? And are we making any progress um, in the direction of reduced cost? Uh, well, I can tell you this, you'd be surprised at the percentage of your fare that actually goes to the airline. And, and, and I think that is the issue that we have. And that's why I mentioned the taxes before. When you look at the, what you pay to move around the region, uh, I remember, and I'll give the example of Jamaica. I remember when Carl, Caribbean Airlines was introducing their inaugural flight directly from um, Jamaica to Barbados. They advertised online 100 USD uh, plus taxes. So I tell myself, I say, well, you know, that's, this, is, this is good stuff. I can take a trip to Jamaica and be back for the weekend or, or whatever. And when I, added, when I added the taxes, it shot up to like 299 US. So that's, that's, that's $200 in taxes. And like I mentioned before, I think Jamaica's total tax money is something like 102 US dollars before you even get any money going to the airlines. So you can see the government's aware your money is going when it, when it comes to um, interregional travel. So that is, that is the barrier that we must we must uh, seek to, to agitate for change from, and CARICOM has taken up the issue yet again. Uh, we hope that they actually follow through this time, but that's really what it is. A lot of taxes and fees, a lot of inefficiencies in the market in and of itself. When you think about um, 2007, I think when they had the World Cup, the, the Cricket World Cup in the region, and we had the single entry CARICOM space where you land in one country, you don't have to clear again when you go to another. After the cricket land, so who did the policy go? And, you know, we have, we, now we land in Antigua, we stop to make, you have to come out, you have to get checked again and so on. Meanwhile, they're charging you $1.50 US for, for G4S to get that money to scan you again and so on. So all of these create inefficiencies within um, the whole cost of travel. And these are things that we need to fix. So it's really not, it, the airlines do have a part, but when you look at it, I, I can tell you from the Liat perspective, most of the fares that we get from a ticket is about, the max that we usually get for like an average flight is about 60 US. Uh, for the lower end of the fair, 60 US out of three, 400 US. Where the rest go in, <laughs> you, you, you know. All right, we have a Facebook question from Howard Kalash. 
what would it take to have Caribbean nations move away from an oil-based economy? And that's to anyone who would like to answer. Oil would have to drop to $10 a barrel. <laughs> it would, we'd have to have a carbon tax that is globally enforced. At this point, I think oil is is a resource, right? We have the whole resource curse problem. But that the oil being a, a big part of of income is, is not that many countries in the Caribbean. If you, if you added up all the CARICOM countries, really is what is Trinidad and Tobago, pretty much is, is the oil country. We, we can now add Ghana to it, Suriname is searching, Jamaica is searching. So I don't think oil is necessarily the problem. I think tourism is actually a bigger problem, followed by you know agricultural products such as as rice and sugar, right? We, we need to get away from these first order type opportunities, in my opinion, and that's the base level. You need to then go to value added products and services. Um, yeah, we spoke a lot about um, moving to value added products and services in our previous chat, which was on food, food security and sustainability. Um, and it keeps coming up in these conversations. So that's something that we definitely need to keep in mind. So speaking about, um, diversification of the economy. Does COVID-19 provide us an opportunity to do that? I know we spoke about it being a sort of a longer term process. So is it that we're, we're running out of time to do this? Is there a sort of a time limit on how quickly we need to diversify? And is there any opportunity provided by COVID-19 for this to happen? Anyway. Well, David, David spoke about Trumpeter's uh, creative destruction. And I think that's where we are now in terms of the region. I think we, we're going to see um, perhaps over the next uh, couple of months, maybe a year, we've already seen a lot of it. A lot of businesses are going to fail because they are not just because of the, the pandemic, but really the pandemic is revealing the inefficiencies in terms of their operation, in terms of their processes and so on, in terms of the fact that they can't operate remotely in some cases. So it's really creating that environment where we sort of forced to examine the way we do business, the way our economies are set up. You know, it's a time, uh, is time running out? I would say so, because what's going to happen after this pandemic is that some countries are going to move further ahead of others in terms of GDP, in terms of development, in terms of their socioeconomic outlook, and others stand the risk of falling far further behind. And that is a, a very real threat for the Caribbean. I think our combined GDP is expected to fall by something like uh, minus 9.6%. 2020. <laughs> no, that is a that is a lot, and I think even for Jamaica, uh, conservative estimates is my um, contraction of four percent. Uh, some have it as high as thirteen percent, and and so these are issues. These are very real issues, and we need to focus on how do we kind of use this as an opportunity. The bigger islands, the bigger countries, and the bigger nations of the world are kind of slowing. Their progress is slowing, so we need to kind of look at this as an opportunity to catch up. Because if you have, imagine you're in a race, so to speak. And somebody in front is having engine issues. They're, they're overheating. So the, the, the big economies, the US and the, the UK, they're overheating, so they have to slow down. It gives the, the, us, the, the cars behind, you know, maybe a lap or two behind. It gives right. us the opportunity you now to kind of, let's see how we can move forward. You know, let us see if we can kick in the nuts and, and, and catch up to these bigger islands. And that, to me, is the fair that we don't embrace that opportunity that we don't do things like investing in, in renewable, renewable energy, investing in China. The, the previous question mentioned reference uh, we in our dependence on oil. How do we do that? We have to move away from uh, these, uh, these, these oil-based uh, um, energy generating mechanisms and so on. These are the things that we need to do to ensure that post-pandemic, you're in a position to springboard. And if we don't do that, 
you're going to find that the, the US and the Canadas and the and the other big economies, they're going to sort themselves out. The engine's going to stop overheating and they're going to pass when they're going to lock me again. So these are the things that we need to look at. Yeah, man. I, I agree with Delano 100%. You have to think of economics in, in Darwinian terms, right? It is very much survival of the fittest. And we are at risk of having a, a lost decade that would start now in 2020 for the next 10 years. We could end up becoming a Japan within the Caribbean as a whole if we don't embrace the changes that we should have been embracing. Because the global trends are already there. This is nothing new. We've been seeing this since 1995 and seen it in the previous revolution, the third industrial revolution with, with computers. So we have been slow in some ways to adapt things. We've been quick to adapt others. So, so when you look at a country like Jamaica that has more than 100% penetration for mobile phones, we were able to leapfrog certain things. We have 5G that is going to be coming out. That gives an opportunity again to catch up, just as Delano said. But it is going to require forward-thinking policymakers and forward-thinking investors. The pandemic is showing up how inefficient the region is. But it's important to understand that the best place to invest is where there are inefficient. Right? I don't want to invest in a perfect place. My, my mentor, Michael Leaching, would say that you, you pay for perfection. So you want to invest where there is inefficiency and help to create more, in, more efficiency. So, so it is a great opportunity to go into the region and deploy capital. But at the same time, the pandemic makes my job easier. I, I was doing you know, research before and we, we meet with different management teams. We talk to some of the directors of these companies. Uh, we do our own uh, due diligence. This makes it easier because it is showing up who was not prepared, who was not forward thinking, because they're not going to get any money. No sensible investor is going to provide capital to management who have poorly allocated capital in the past to be prepared for the existing world and the digital economy going forward. And that creative destruction is going to create very, very big winners. We see it in the United States with the tech companies and how they have managed to do even better in the pandemic. They have been hurt by the pandemic. They've done better. And the companies that were able to move you know, people to work from home have done better than those who have been stuck in this antiquated management model. And I think the most important thing we should think about is actually a famous case study from Harvard Business Review. I talk about India. Right? India had not modernized their steel industry for, for decades. The government was very controlling about it, even giving quotas. And they got punished if they did more than the quota. And they were willing eventually to change that. But the reason it changed wasn't because they were internally willing. They were forced to change. They were going to lose an entire industry. And so Tata, Steel and others had to go and change. And that's the same thing that's going to happen in the Caribbean. Inefficiencies are going to be forced out of the system. And the most efficient operators are going to be the ones to lead uh, that in the Tata Steel case study and learning from uh, how, com how companies and countries have modernized and be and more prepared for this digital world that we live in. All right, let's pivot a little bit and talk more about the people. So, founder and chairman of the World Economic Forum, Professor Klaus Schwab, wrote earlier this week that the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world to create a healthier, more equitable, and more prosperous future. Some people believe that this statement comes from a place of privilege. For those who are bearing the brunt of the worst impacts of COVID, there's no silver linings. And the least of their concerns right now is whether or not the world resets. 
people who are struggling to meet basic needs with worsening conditions cannot begin to see or access this new opportunity. And even in our research world, the benefits won't really rebound to them. So how can we translate the COVID-19 recovery efforts from a country's GDP down to impact the everyday lives of citizens? And how can we use the pandemic as a mechanism to lift people out of poverty in a sustainable way? Um, David, let's start with you. I was going to let Delano go first, but okay. I, so for me, the, it, it comes down to reform and being open to reform and learning best practices from elsewhere. So there should be no sacred cows. You should be open to tax reform, which Delana ha, has given us some examples of tax reform. You need to be open to, to agricultural reform. That's obviously critical to feeding people or reducing your import-export balance, right? Jamaica, for example, imports 800 million US dollars per year of food. That, that's absolutely ridiculous for a country with so much arable land. Singapore probably laughs at us every year when they see those numbers. It's, it's utterly ridiculous. So, so we need to be open to reform in a number of ways. We need labor market reform. There's no question. But most importantly, we need education reform. This pandemic has given us a window that forced everybody to adapt modern teaching. Like you have to be using, whether it's tablets, computers, but online teaching. The education system in the Caribbean, unfortunately, is, is very similar to the U.S. education system. Yes, the U.S. is, is more advanced in some ways, but in general, it is still a system that was designed for factory workers. You, that's all they produce. We're just going to produce new factory workers, not as many knowledge workers. But the Caribbean needs to decide not to follow that British model, that U.S. model and move much further forward and invest in human capital. And I can probably bring up Singapore. That, that is a difference. Singapore didn't have any land. They don't have any hinterland. They import fresh water. They have to import foods. The Caribbean, unfortunately, has so much land that we decided that we don't need to invest in our human capital. We focus on other things. When you don't have a choice, you end up having to do it. The Caribbean still has choices, and we need to realize that uh, carbon-intensive economies are the way of the past, and we need to be focused on the way of the future. Thank you. Dalano, anything to add? Uh, yeah, I, I would like to, to, to beat on that education drum. Uh, I don't know, as you know, that, that's what really was the focus of my PhD, uh, in terms of how education, the education system developed in St. Vincent and the Grenadines pre- and post-independence. Um, so for me, it was an interesting look to see how our education system focused on, like like um, David said, um, on, on factory workers, persons who were intended to, 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 to deal with the, the, the low-skill jobs and so on. And that has changed post-independence um, to some extent. Uh, we have to embrace technologies, as he mentioned. But my thing about investing heavily in education, I agree that is important. But what I've seen from my research, uh, at least in the case of Sindhans and the Grenadines, is that We've, we've invested heavily, uh, our Prime Minister calls it the education revolution, um, and we've invested heavily since 2001 in education. Um, uh, they're, they're hoping for one university graduate for household and all these things. But what we have not seen uh, from my numbers and from my studies is that when we have a lot of persons going off and getting first degrees, uh, graduate degrees and so on, when they come back, what is lacking is the employment in, in, in the country. And that's, that it leads to brain drain, it leads to a lot of issues. I know you in Jamaica have a big conversation going on now about brain drain in the health, in the health sector and so on. Um, but in terms of 
what my research kind of showed is that a lot of the persons that we've invested so heavily in terms of these forward, forward-going um, education initiatives, that uh, they've ended up back in the, in the public sector. They've ended up back working in the ministry, doing and not really ways that, that they're not change-making jobs. They are underemployed and so on. So we have to start to look at the complementarity with um, our investment in education and building the sort of economic model where we can employ the people that we invest in all this money in. Um, I would also say in terms of what what it means to the average person, moving from GDP into the average person, it means, one, it means jobs, like I mentioned before. It means increased spending in the economy outside of government spending. We want people in our economy to have money, to have disposable income to be able to spend domestically. Uh, we would hope that the government has the fiscal space to, to initiate and continue transfer payments to the most vulnerable. These are things that the people are looking for. People are looking again, finally, in terms of tax reductions, and even more importantly in these times, no tax increases, because now is not the time that you're going to have a lot of government saying, well, let's reduce this tax. Uh, what the people are really hoping for, what economists are looking at is, you know, we don't really expect you because we can, you can't compromise your, your revenue that much, but we hope that you have the fiscal space to not put in place any new tax measures. Thank you. Um, so Jamaica has launched the CARE program, um, which gives all compassionate grants to those who are unemployed or informally employed, um, who were, sorry, let me start again. So Jamaica has launched the CARE program, which is a government um, subsidy program. It gives compassionate grants, grants to those who were unemployed or informally employed during the pandemic. It also provides temporary unemployment benefits to those who have been laid off since the pandemic and grants to self-employed whose regular earnings have been disrupted in addition to grants to small businesses. However, the targeted cash grants have already exhausted the budget allocation and the wide range of new emergency programs will generate administrative efficiencies. So are recovery aid packages really the answer? Is, that, is this what um, governments should be exploring more of? Is it a sustainable um, way to assist people? Uh, well, I, I, I there. Just, oh, you can go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, we've seen regional governments come forward with a lot of details about fiscal packages. You mentioned some of what Jamaica has put forward. And the, the aim really is to stabilize economic conditions domestically. Now, part of what I've been doing in terms of uh, my own research and my own development and, and becoming more knowledgeable on this is that I've been following the IMF COVID-19 policy tracker. That's a resource that the IMF has where it details all the packages of every government that they that have uh, that they that sign on to the Article um, Four um, of the IMF, where they've detailed what they've done since the pandemic. So, for, for example, Jamaica, uh, I see from the IMF website, you guys from that same tracker, you put in place the, the care package as you mentioned, which you as, as as well has been sort of depleted. You've looked at some tax tax cuts. You've um, put in place duty waivers and medical equipment. Uh, if you look at Barbados, they, they put in place, or they, they're now rolling out what I found a very innovative product, which is the, the public wage saving schemes, uh, which they call BOSS, where, where really the government is allowing them uh, to forego some of their wages and have it instead in, 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 in government bonds going forward. So that's been a, an innovative way so that the government of Barbados can kind of ease up some of their, uh, and give them some fiscal space in terms of their wages and their, their recurrent expenditure, and they want to direct it towards capital. We know in Antigua, uh, they've gone as far, and I, I think the Jamaicans would perhaps 
uh, enjoy this. I love it if you could come to Jamaica. In Antigua, they've actually instituted a 20% reduction in electricity costs <laughs> across the board in Antigua. <laughs> because as you know, their, their APU is owned by the government. So they've implemented that so that your bills, they recognize it during this time. What, what are people complaining about? Listen, I can't pay my bills. So what have they done? They said, okay, well, we own the electricity company and we're saying to you, we're giving you a 20% reduction in terms of your cars and so on. So these are, there are a lot of things that the different governments have done. Is it the way forward? The IMF has said, and some of these international agencies have said, yes, it is the way forward. But for me, I would say government should uh, explore it to the extent that they are not unsustainable in terms of increasing sovereign debt. Uh, sovereign debt, that's a big issue. We can't keep borrowing to start a fuel and provide transfer payments or something. We are barring to invest in non-productive um, um, uh, expenditure, really. So that is part of the issue there. They, they have to effectively target the persons who are most vulnerable. That is a, a critical part for me, and as well as the sectors that need it most. So you, you, can, you can't be investing in sectors like that, that. We spoke about Trumpeter's creative destruction before. You can't be investing government money in industries that are naturally dying that are inefficient, to start to prop up em employment and so on. That's counterproductive. It may seem harsh because obviously those persons are going to be without jobs and so on. But if you're investing government resources, especially if it from loans and so, into these businesses that have not kept the pace, that have misallocated capital in the past and so on, that's an issue that you need to look to remedy throughout this, all, all this entire process as well. And you have to improve prospects um, for bo boosting future employment. You have to look at these um, these more sustainable energy me mechanisms and so on. These are things that we need to be investing. If you're, if you're borrowing money to fuel capital expenditure, let it be in sustainable development uh, modalities. Let, let's go that direction. And you have to also look at this time we've looked around the region. And, and I mentioned the International Labour Organization. They've said the bulk of the people who have lost their income are low-skill workers. So what does the government have to do now? We have to look at ways of trying to bring these low-skill displaced workers up to a higher standard that they can integrate into the economies going forward in a way that going forward they have a little bit more job security. It can't just be if a hurricane comes and mash up the tourism sector that all these people out of employment again. We need to upscale our people. And that's for me the takeaways from that. Amen, amen, amen. I, I would say that we have to think of it from a standpoint of you're bleeding, right? So if you're bleeding, the first thing you need to do is you stop the bleeding. So you put on a tourniquet. That's what these, you know, cash transfer programs, these compassionate grant programs are. So the first thing is you do, you stop the bleeding. After that, though, you need you might need to do surgery, and then you actually solve the problem. So these are all temporary and need to be temporary. But we have to remember that Caribbean governments, regional governments over time have proven to be fairly poor at capital allocation, right? They get taxes from, from us, from the individuals, and they tend to misallocate that capital. Just like Delana said, they're putting it back into uh, economies, industries that are dying and, and keeping afloat things that should be left to die. However, that's not saying that you leave the workers uh, to collapse and struggle with no money. We need to have two things. One, we need better social safety nets in the Caribbean, we see exactly that same problem in the United States versus Canada or versus the EU where they have better social safety nets. And the US, this is July, we're about to have a big problem in two weeks. So let us see what happens here. Don't learn the, the wrong mistake from that. They've made mistakes with poor social safety nets. We don't want to repeat that in the Caribbean. So let's improve our social safety nets. But number two and the most important thing that we should look at is, is what happened 
when NAFTA came into place between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, right? There was a famous comment about the giant sucking sound of jobs moving from the U.S. to cheaper, you know, the Mexico, cheaper labor opportunities. Well, what they were supposed to do when NAFTA was passed, they were supposed to be set aside some money to retrade workers, to upskill the workers who were going to lose their jobs, right? So it might be in the auto manufacturing space, for example. They were supposed to be retrained and upskilled. Not enough of that money was actually deployed to the workers to help make sure that they could now transition into more service-related jobs or the knowledge economy. We need to make sure that we don't repeat that mistake in the Caribbean as well. So right now, yes, I love that you're doing the compassionate grants, but why not now have a longer program that says you're going to get this social safety net. We have the PATH program, for example, in Jamaica. But in order to continue getting checks after a certain amount of time, call it three months, six months, for you to get a check every month, you need to complete this program that's going to be providing some skills training. So there's improving literacy, improving numeracy, uh, training you how to be an entrepreneur, giving you uh, digital literacy training. We could do all of those and tie your check while you're unemployed to being reskilled and upskilled. When you have people who are more skilled, you can attract those employers to the country now to invest and hire those people. Nobody's going to come to the country if they can't hire workers of a certain level. You look at Jamaica where they estimate about 70% of Jamaicans have no certification, have no skills training. That's a disincentive to come to Jamaica. I would rather go to Barbados where they subsidize tertiary education and it's a, a much highly, higher educated workforce there. So they're naturally going to attract the, attract the highest skilled jobs. So upskill your workers with that compassionate grant and then attract the investors and the companies who will then hire those people. But is is not one size fits all policy. All right, thank you. I have two more questions for our guests, but just a reminder to Zoom and also watching on Facebook. If you have your questions, send them in, raise your hand. We only have about half hour to go, so now is the time. All right, so we know that some Caribbean countries experience barriers to accessing international aids or loans based on their status as whether it's middle income, high income, depending on the country. Um, can you give us some more information about this and how we as a Caribbean can overcome some of these barriers? And do you think that these obstacles will affect our path to economic recovery. Um, Delano? Uh, sure. Well, from well, the Bretton Woods um, institutions, they've sort of come up with these metrics over the years, as you know. Um, lower income, middle income, higher income countries. Uh, previously or historically, back in the day, when we were focused on sugar cane and banana and so on, we were in the lower uh, income bracket. And so we had a lot of access to a lot of um, development funding from the UK, from the EU, from the, from the US and Canada and so on. So we, we were, historically we've enjoyed that. And so, but what has happened over time is that we, as we've grown our economies, as we've employed more people, as we've educated our people a little bit more, our economies have gone up. Uh, and unfortunately for us as well, uh, our populations have not been growing uh, at the rate. Uh, at the rate so our, our population growth has been slow while our GDP has compared to those times has, has relatively uh, grown. So what we have now is we have a situation where we, when you look at metrics such as GDP per capita, which obviously is the GDP divided by your population, what we've had over the years is our GDP per capita has increased I and mean, has an increase and has increased. 
but our people, our population size has not been growing. So you have a double whammy there. So now we've graduated from low, from lower income, we've gone to middle income. Some of our countries in the region, actually, I think Bahamas are in higher income. Uh, and as maybe Turks and Caicos as well, they're in higher income. And so now because of this, they say, listen, you're poor, but you're a little bit too poor. You're, you're a little bit too rich now to receive this assistance. And so that's that is essentially what it is. So now they, they no longer are allowed to access these these huge food, huge pools of development finance, which are really concessionary loans and grants, uh, which allow the country, while borrowing, to keep their repayments and keep control of their balance of payments and so on uh, by by keeping um, repayment low and so on. So that's important. That's that's the basis of it. Has it been affecting us? Of course it has. I I remember even from my research, I. I um, part of what I did is that I studied um, budget pre presentations over 50 years in St. Vincent. So every time they held parliament, I read the transcript of those. And you could see at first in, in the 1970s and so the early 1970s, they were so all the, par all the parliamentarians were so happy. Oh, we have development financing from, from Canada and so and we, we're getting access to develop St. Vincent, the Grenadines. But fast forward to the 1990s now, and you hear these same problems, not the same, because some of them left, but you hear the politicians now lamenting the fact that they no longer have access to this development finance. And, and so they're now forced to borrow commercially from um, Paris clubs and other international lending uh, agencies. Uh, and so it's increased the cost of capital, it's increased the cost of borrowing for these countries. What we want to see, uh, and what we're agitating for now, and I know CARICOM has spoken out vocally about it, is we want to see these metrics that determines whether we are high, middle, uh, lower income countries. We want to see it in include an element of vulnerability where it allows our countries, not because our GDP per capita are high, but we have, a, we have to build in, we want them to build in an index that says, listen, but it, we are one hurricane away from bankruptcy as a country. So we want you to take this into consideration that going forward, you know, that we are allowed to access some of this, uh, this development finance. And that's really what it is. Is it holding us back? I think it is. Because when you look at our countries, while we, nominally we have high, some of us have higher GDP per capita, we're still very poor and <laughs> we're still very poor countries our development. We have a lot of inequality. We have a lot of income gaps and so on. So these are the gaps that we need this financing to, 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 to bridge, but we can't access it. And that's the challenges of the government. So, so I want to pick up on that, and, and I take a slightly different approach from, from Delano in that I don't like to beg anybody for money. It is their money. They get to set the rules. They get to set the terms on which you borrow the money. They don't owe us any money. And so when you think about you know, Jamaica, for example, and in pre previous IMFDs, not the recent one, but in the past we've gotten money from USAID that says, oh, well, you can't use the money for the dairy farmers and you have to import you know, powdered milk instead. And it, it essentially puts the dairy farming industry out of business, right? Or you have to import Idaho potatoes instead of growing local potatoes. So you, you have to be very careful about who you're asking money from and the strings that are attached to that money. Because traditionally they have been political strings, right? I will give you money well, you need to vote for my person at the OAS and we don't want to support Venezuela or we don't want you to do business with Cuba or no, we don't want you to do business with China or with Huawei. So if you can control your own destiny, you don't have to worry about those restrictions. And so what we need to do is go after the single largest potential source of cheap financing for the Caribbean. And that is the Caribbean diaspora. No country in the Caribbean has done a diaspora bond. I've been writing about this for 12 years. Where is a diaspora bond from Jamaica? Where is a diaspora bond from Barbados? Israel has been doing it. 
and proving how to do it. It has not been done. We've talked, we've talked, we've talked. Let's actually get it done. And the diaspora is not going to give you the same kind of strings. The diaspora is getting 0.5% or less interest in their savings account right now. The diaspora is going to be much more likely to actually support a local country, your Caribbean country, your home country. Half of them want to, re to return. Half of them want to retire back to Jamaica or Barbados or Bahamas or Antigua or St. Vincent. So I would say stop worrying about convincing the rich countries to lend us money and come to the diaspora and give us a proper vehicle that is transparent, has good governance, and is not going to be wasted like it traditionally has been. And you would solve your problem immediately. That's how I look at it. Yes, and I think that the idea of like, the diaspora bond would also tie into our sustainability as a region um, and our own self-reliance. So I like that idea. Um, there is a question in the chat that I'm going to pose to you, David. One of the largest employers currently in Jamaica doesn't require any special skills, and that is the BPO sector. But there is a lot of investment going into this particular sector. Is this counterproductive? Well, so, so no. So first of all, we, we own shares in an in a entity that has exposure to the BPO sector in Jamaica and, and the wider Caribbean. And so what I would say, having toured and seen how it has scaled up over time, number one, every single person in that building is happy to be getting that paycheck. So that's the first thing. They are happy to be getting that paycheck. They're using their university degree. It still does require some skills. You need to be able to use a computer. You need to be able to speak English in an understandable way. You need to be able to solve problems for customers. So we need to be careful that we don't compare the, the BPO sector and, and limit it to just call centers, right? BPO is business process outsourcing, not just call centers. You start with call centers, but unlike what happened with, with garments in Jamaica, where we said, hey, we're going to sew the sleeve and the collar and the neck onto the shirt and then sell it and, cheap, and only focus on cheap labor. We want to compete on cost. And so that eventually moves to other places. In the BPO sector, they're moving up the value chain. And that's the most important thing. Right? They're, they're implementing whether it's chatbots or they want to implement AI and machine learning to help. So as long as we're upskilling the workers, that's not a bad place. Start get them comfortable, get them in the system, but upskill them. And I think we need to start looking at BPO in a very different way. Imagine right now in the United States, when you go and see a doctor, they take notes, right? The doctor scribbles notes, whether it's on a tablet or writing on paper. You need to do transcription, medical transcription of those notes, right? I go and see my orthopedic surgeon is in Jamaica. I was playing for real bone and I hurt my knee. Went to my doctor in Jamaica. Then he sent me for the x-ray. I got the x-ray done and they emailed the x-ray to him. And when I went to see him in Jamaica, he put it up on his iPad because he was using an app. There's no reason why you couldn't have people in the U.S. doing the same thing and sending those x-rays, those MRIs to Jamaica, to Barbados, to Trinidad. Because obviously our health professionals are very well qualified. Otherwise, the U.S., Canada and U.K. wouldn't be coming down there to take them. Right. The same thing with our teachers. They're coming down there to take our teachers. Well, now everybody gets to do everything remotely. So why can't we have remote teaching or remote exam preparation, remote exam marketing, accounting, customer service? There's so much that can be done. If it's done from home, which is what we've seen today, it means it could be done somewhere else in the Caribbean for cheaper. I could spend one third of the money to hire an engineer to program and work for Google or Twitter or Facebook or Microsoft and have them live in Jamaica or live in Barbados. That is how we need to think of BPO. So I don't think it's a bad thing. We just need to make sure we move very quickly 
up the value chain. And I have no problem saying, I tell BPO with Yanni Epstein is who I've seen. I've gotten the tour and I've seen what they are doing to move up the value chain. And they literally just opened this week in St. Lucia. That is how we need to be thinking. But it means that you need management who are also forward thinking and understand that technology means that work is no longer tied to geography. Simple as that. Right, thank you. Um, now we're going to talk a little bit about our small business sector. Um, so a UNDP study published in May of this year talking about the social and economic impact of COVID-19 in Jamaica spoke that said that the government should redirect the fiscal effort to sustain businesses and jobs and increase cash transfers through existing social programs for unemployed formal and informal workers. How can we incorporate sustainability into business development models? So how can we equip small businesses to be able to withstand shocks from crises such as COVID-19 and climate change? Because we spoke earlier about a lot of businesses have been forced to close based on their existing business models. So how can we create a mechanism to give small businesses the skills that they would need to improve their business sustainability? Um, David, you can start and then we'll throw it to the last. Yeah. So, so that's a tricky question because it's, it's not the government's job to save business or spin up business, right? The government is supposed to create a policy environment that then allows private capital to essentially go in and invest and then the market determines winners or losers. So I think the government needs to ensure that they have a conducive environment for the private investors to come in. Jamaica recently passed some laws that make it much easier to set up a venture capital firm. There are tax benefits and a structure that allows you to do that. We have, you know, whether it's St. Lucia or Barbados who have IBC-related rules or Cayman. So the government is a policy entity. It is not supposed to be saving businesses. In, in Jamaica, we have the Jamaica Business Development Corporation, though, right? I spoke at their third accelerator launch program, graduation program last year in October. And it was amazing to see what exists to help small businesses in Jamaica that so many people are not even taking advantage of. We have the Development Bank of Jamaica, which has now launched a program, is the MIEP. This is the Mentorship Innovation Entrepreneurship Program. I, am, I sit on the advisory board and I help design the mentorship program. That is going to be providing grants of up to a million Jamaican dollars to 13 companies initially to help them over the next six months and then, and then fully five years, to help them get up to speed. It has been interesting to see the 70 plus applications that came in and realize how far behind some of these small businesses are in, in adapting to this digital economy. So we need to focus more on, on grant programs around incubators, not even accelerators. We need incubators. These people have issues with, with fiscal management, right? Financial literacy is a problem. They don't understand modern marketing and incorporating social media. You're doing an online video right now. Most businesses in Jamaica can do an online annual general meeting, and those are the large ones. So uh, you look at the small business, it's going to be even harder for them to compete in a globalized world. So we need to do more training. The problem with that, though, is that the only focus on training, we end up with this thing that calls being over-mentored and underfunded. So train them, mentor them, partner them with somebody so they can learn, right? Apprentice. But then we need to get capital to go into those entities. And we don't have enough in the Caribbean from a venture capital standpoint, from an angel investor standpoint. The majority of that money goes to the same old 20th, 20th century industries. We need more capital to now be focused on people who have ideas, 
and they're willing to fund and allow you to test the idea. They focus on people who've gotten a little traction. They provide the funding and give you permission to fail. The Caribbean region does not give people permission to fail. We don't like failure. And that's the difference between the United States, Silicon Valley and elsewhere than, than the Caribbean. We tell you that, you know, the higher monkey climb is the more embattled show. You mustn't talk about it versus if you're in the U.S., Man, I raise somebody, I talk about it. I'm going to promote all the time. I'm Airbnb, I'm Twitter, I did this, I am Uber, I am Uber Eats. We need to give people permission to fail. And we need investors who are willing to put capital into the innovative opportunities that are going to show where the next 50 years are going and stop focusing on the last 50 years. All right, thank you, Delano. I would just add to that. Not only do we not give people the, uh, the, the, the space to fail, we penalize them for it. <laughs> and I think, I think that's, that's one of the big problems that we have in the region where, for example, a lot of these small businesses, you have a loan from the bank and so you, you, you fail, you stand to lose your home, you stand to lose. You know, there's that, there's that environment there and it kind of makes the entrepreneur, would-be entrepreneur, you know, ponder about that, that, that life, about getting into something like that. It also, it's a, disincentive, it's a disincentive, really. So we need to create that environment, like you said. I agree with you in terms of the incubator. I, I think, for me, what I've noticed across the region, specifically in, in, as, as it relates to COVID-19 and other natural and other big shifts, um, you know, black swan events, so to speak. Um, what we don't have in, in the region is a culture of business continuity management. Mm. And I've realized that when I was, I, I used to work with um, CIBC, FCIB in Barbados. I worked in the business continuity department. It was when I first got the job and when I first started, I was like, wait, they have a whole business continuity that, you know, that's important. And we don't, we don't look at stuff like that. They, they have in, in their policies and in their manuals, if X happens, this is the response. If Y happens, this is the response. If the economy in Barbados is shut down, this is the response. If we lose power here, we shift our databases there and we continue moving. There's a guideline when you can stay home, when you can work from the office. These are things that we don't look at. And it sounds like a like big business policy, but it really isn't. Our smaller businesses don't contemplate these things. What if we, 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 we are, we're limited in terms of our supply chain as small businesses? We, but instead of kind of recognizing that and looking for a backup supplier in the event that something goes awry, you know, we focus still on, on that single supplier. We don't focus on making sure that our supply chains are stable. Uh, we don't have, you know, so these are the type of things that we need to look at in terms of business continuity so that we can continue to exist. We can continue to operate even if we have a shutdown. Our small businesses need to get, get, kind of get that mindset in and we need to do some training in, it in general because I don't see a lot of companies, even the bigger companies, I don't see a lot of companies focusing on business continuity. Um, sustainable financing models for our small businesses, I think we need that. Um, and they have to be, be very wary of over leveraging. I think sometimes literacy, financial literacy plays a part in it because you see a little uptick in your business and you tell yourself a boomer reach. Let me go and hire <laughs> five new employees. Let me go and expand into a new product line and so on. But what you've done there is that you've created a situation where your business doesn't have the space, uh, you know, any mishap can. You have to be very careful of that. And you have to find, like you mentioned, investors who give you space. That, uh, they don't expect a return next year. They give you that space to grow the business before they expect any significant returns on their investment. Uh, we need to look at productivity-based employment practices. Uh, if, you, if you want to bring on staff, 
let's say, okay, you're doing a contract four hours a week, you do it from home, you know, keep my overheads low, I don't have to invest in office space and so on. These are things that small businesses need to be looking at. And of course, they need to leverage the use of ICT. Uh, and those for me are kind of like the four points that I think going forward, if we push on, we can make a little laugh. All right, thank you. I have one follow-up question in the chat before we wrap up. Um, what can we do to improve the inf investment capital landscape in the Caribbean? Because it's quite difficult to find capital to invest in small businesses and startups. So any thoughts on how we can improve the investment capital landscape? Yeah, well, so we're working on that. Thankfully, in Jamaica, for example, we, we had launched the, the venture capital program, right? And I, I had to launch that in the first year with, with Joe Matala and RJ Richards and so on. Other countries are starting to look at that. We got capital from, from overseas to help get it done. And the first thing they did was, was bringing outside experts who helped to create the kinds of ecosystems that would facilitate it. We need to realize that we can't copy Silicon Valley and that model is actually not sustainable in terms of the way that they invest and deploy capital. But what we need to do is, is change the cultural mindset of how to invest. Right? Jamaica is a perfect example. I'm a mentor of the Branson Center of Entrepreneurs in Caribbean. And I've had to judge you know, the, the final graduating class. And, and a lot of these people have really good businesses, opportunities to scale. But in the US, you would only be selling 20% of the equity to raise your capital. And, and in the Caribbean, people want 45% of their business, 60% of their business, and still call it venture capital. And that, that is ridiculous. That's private equity. So we need to have a complete change in the way that angel investing and early stage investing is done in the Caribbean. I look to more you know, the foreign models that are actually working. But at the same time, you, the individual, can't change that yourself. So what you need to do is try even harder to become uh, what I would say as is called a fundable founder. And that means that you need to put in all the work to know your numbers, to make sure you do the market research and understand the competitive landscape, or become a good leader so that people trust you to put some capital with, with you. Right? Raising capital is hard anyway. Less than 1% of companies in the United States get venture capital funded, period. 70% of small businesses fail within five years. That is just the US. So don't look at what you see on TechCrunch and reading. Bloomberg and CNBC thinking that it's easy to raise money in America. It is not easy. It is hard. It is harder to raise money in the Caribbean because we have less of that equity capital flowing into the region that is willing to take a risk. And that really comes from this, this plantocracy mindset that we still have. And we, we need to fundamentally change it. I'm doing my part because I'm bringing money from outside the U.S. and I intend to be the most founder-friendly investor in the Caribbean. I expect everybody to apply to us because we are not going to give them those kinds of onerous terms and, and we do think differently and we're willing to take longer risk and we will be patient capital. Hopefully we get to be an example and we'll see what's happening but there, there are other groups in the region that are doing that and you know we'll have an announcement soon on, on the, our, our relationship with Ten Habitat out of Barbados to work on the Eastern Caribbean and we'll work with a group in Jamaica for, for the Jamaica Hub. But I think that's what it's going to come from. Somebody has to lead it by example. And hopefully other people will say, oh, that model actually works. Well, I guess I should try it as well. All right. Yeah. So thank you, Delano, and thank you, David, for sharing those very interesting points. I'll admit, um, <clears throat> before I move into the wrap-up, I, I have very little knowledge of economics. But this chat has really opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, 
and it will certainly help our mission going forward for these chats. So thanks again for sharing, um, both of you. I just want to wrap up with three three points. This is diff really difficult to, to kind of uh, come by them based on what was said, but essentially what we need to do um, coming out of this pandemic is to strategically diversify our economy. And I hope I'm saying it right. Um, swiftly and in a sustainable way um, to ensure that we are able to lift our people out of poverty, um, especially, you know, as the Lana would have pointed out, that the low-skilled workers are the ones who are most vulnerable when it comes to these kind of economic scenarios and having better social safety nets, as David would have pointed out. We also need to come together as a region, um, understanding our cultural differences and capitalizing on our comparative advantages to improve on regional economic sustainability. And the third one, we need to create structures that promote local investments from our diaspora. I think that's a very important point, David. Thank you for that. Um, and we need to improve the transparency around these um, arrangements so we can bring in more of those types of investments. So we can, as I said, David, leave the rich people and with their money, leave the rich countries with their money so we can, you know, build our own. And make use of the opportunities that we have now to ensure that we can springboard coming out of the pandemic. So we need to... to um, engage more with our forward-thinking decision-makers and investors and being ready to improve upon our identified inefficiencies so to ensure that our businesses and by extension our country and region remain sustainable coming out of COVID. So I think those are those are in summary my three takeaways from this chat. A plus. Thank you Mario. <laughs> um, all right I just want to say that Every Friday that I come to one of these, I always leave very inspired. Um, no matter how doom and doom I might feel about the world, I always come to COVID chat and I, I, I get a sort of burst of energy. And this week is no different. And I really want to say thank you to both of our guests um, for sharing with us. Our next COVID chat session is actually going to be next week. So you don't need to wait two weeks. We'll be back next week, Friday. And our topic will be bridging the digital divide. And we're going to be specifically focusing on education in the COVID era and the post-COVID era. Right, so if you missed some of today's discussion or if you want to re-listen or share with a friend, we'll be uploading our podcast, which you can listen on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, and Buzzsprout. And the name of the podcast is Hashtag COVID Chat. So give it a listen, like, share, and subscribe. And don't forget to follow us at Our Footprint on Twitter and Instagram and at ESL Caribbean on Twitter and at Envirosol. Again, that's E-N-V-I-R-S-O-L on Instagram.